0: I am joined by Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. Paul, welcome to Forward Guidance. How are you doing?
1: Very good. Thank you, Jack.
0: I'm glad. So, Paul, you are an expert in the oil market, having been involved on an institutional level for many, many years. I was just reading your note from Sankey Research, and I believe the term you use to to, uh, define the oil market right now is, it's a tough tape. What what did you mean by that?
1: Well, really, that it's not going anywhere in a hurry. As I mentioned to you, it's... um you know, we hit seventy one dollar WTI back in December of last year, and obviously that was a significant low relative to where we got to at the peak of the Russia Ukraine invasion, which was, you know, above one hundred and twenty dollars a barrel. And we've really been range bound since that time. And if you combine that with the S and P being range bound um, over the past what is five six weeks. It's tough for the hedge fund community, particularly long-short hedge fund community, to make money in a tape that doesn't have a strong direction. So that's that's basically the idea. As you know, the volatility in oil means that you know, big moves can be very, very big. And uh, at the moment, we're not getting that. And so it's it's just tough to trade, basically.
0: So let's put up a chart of Brent uh, uh, dollar, uh, the cost of a Brent crude in blue. And then it's the analyst consensus what you know, folks such as yourself think oil is going to be in orange. So you see we had a huge run up into you know, June, July of 2022 above hundred dollars. Now it's you say it's as you say it's range bound. So, uh, but it, the trend is a little bit down if you sort of you know just draw a line from that peak in 2022 to to now. It's it's mildly pointing a little bit down and the actual price is below the analyst consensus. So the consensus is a, you know, a group of, of many analysts. You are, you are one analyst. What is your view on where Brent should be? Uh,
1: I think at the moment we're quite bearish, actually. So we're not seeing the potential. Essentially, this is a seasonally bullish time of year for oil. Uh, it's driven basically by the US driving season and the way the refineries have to turn around In order to meet what we call summer-grade gasoline. So, you you shift the requirement of gasoline to be technical to have a lower reed vapor pressure, which means that it evaporates less during the summer and reduces smog. That chart, just to be clear, shows you the, the 2023 futures strip, right? So, that's not the oil price. That's what the market thought the oil price would average in 2023. So, that's how you got to a point, as you mentioned, where Last year, people were thinking that oil would average over a hundred dollars in 2023. That was both the strip at which point the analysts were behind the behind the curve, and and then of course what the analysts thought would happen, and they got pretty high. But now they're above that curve, as you show in the chart. So essentially, the market and, and the analysts have been disappointed by uh, by what's transpired this year. Uh, one of the old lines is that you know the future strip is a terrible predictor of oil prices. But it's better than analysts, <laughs> and that's pretty much a mathematically proven fact. So um, you know, you, you just have to sort of respect the market in oil and keep in mind, of course, that that it's very, very highly traded. It's the most traded uh, commodities, basically the biggest market in the world in real terms. That is to say, there's there's real oil being traded, 100 million barrels a day, more or less. Is demand? Um, you know, that's an enormous market uh, that. that that essentially is traded every day in real terms. You know, pe- Real people are using real oil. It's, it's not a theory. And so the market should be very efficient. The other thing to keep in mind, Jack, briefly is that the first quant traders, if you read back to the, the Simons of the world and stuff, first got into oil trading because of its liquidity. And so there's an enormous amount of quant trading, electronic trading, and everything else that goes on with oil, which obviously has a major impact on the market.
0: All right. So WTI, Western Texas Intermediate Crude, right now, as you record around 72 bucks. Brent, I imagine uh, you know, a few bucks higher than that. You said you're bearish on the market. So what is sort of your forecast for oil? And I mean, do you think we will have a quite severe crash, or are you just cautious rather than truly bearish?
1: Yeah, I mean, I hate to do the old thing of I'm um, enormously bullish long term, but of course, you know, but expecting a pullback, which I've always said is a great way to have a career as an analyst on the sell side of Wall Street, which you know you can't, you kind of can't be wrong. I think that we really have to go back to to some long term dynamics and then some short term dynamics. The long term dynamics is the oil; it tends to be set by, that has been set in history, by productivity. So. As productivity is improving or declining, so you'll be in a long term bull or bear cycle. And those cycles essentially ran into the formation of OPEC. You had increased productivity and oil prices under pressure through the 50s and 60s. The formation of OPEC then reduced productivity because the major oil resource was nationalized by OPEC. And that was the massive boom that we saw in first great oil shocks of 73 and 79. From that point on, actually, you had tremendous growth in non OPEC because of the higher oil prices. So there was a huge productivity gain that really ran from 1980 ish uh, right the way through to the lows of, of, 2008 to, of Sorry, 1998, 1999. Uh, you then had an upcycle driven by Chinese demand and the fact that productivity didn't improve from that point because you'd sort of maxed out non OPEC supply, which would be things like the North Sea, the North Slope in Alaska. You didn't find more of those, and the oil companies really struggled to find supply. And then in 2012, the, the the cycle again changed shortly after the peak oil price of 2008, when of course you had the U.S. unconventional revolution. So to answer your question, finally, and you've asked it several times, and I've I wouldn't say I've ignored it; I've talked around it. Basically, I think that we saw 40 as a low in COVID, right? So that's an extreme low. That was a really extreme situation from the demand point of view. I think that 60 is is really a floor on oil. Um you know how high can you go you saw sort of 120 130 during the Russian crisis which you know in case you didn't know Russia is the third one of the three big oil producers alongside Saudi and the US and so losing Russia in some way shape or form was an enormous supply shock to the market and in that context with demand recovering from covid an asterisk next to china in terms of what happened there with covid uh you know you saw 120 130 dollars barrel peak pricing not average for the year call it an average of 100 last year so you know you've got your range right it's going to be somewhere between an extreme low of 40 and call it an extreme high of 120 and you know you know if we split the difference we would expect oil to be around 80 then within that according to crises whether they're economic crises on the downside or supply crises on the upside you know you, you can be as high as as i said 120 or as low as 40 i think for the remainder of the year i had called for 100 to be to be honest i had called for 120 by memorial day of this year which is next week I'm obviously going to be wrong, but but that was last year's call. And there was a number of uncertainties. The first was how cold would winter be globally. The second would be how severe would Russian sanctions impact Russian supply. And the third would, have, would be how strongly China would come back. And those are the kind of big moving parts. The additional distortion was the release of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the US, which was as high as a million barrels a day last year, an enormous marginal source of supply. SPR has kind of gone away as an issue. China is kind of working but not as much as might have been hoped and we can talk more about that. Russia is still producing a lot and my my conspiracy theory is that the uh, the administration US administration and probably western europe are sort of tolerating at the very least tolerating if not encouraging certainly allowing russian exports of oil to continue because of the inflation problems and the other issues that obviously you would exacerbate if you were to really crack down on russia and so you're seeing, for example, an extreme case of India importing very discounted Russian barrels and actually exporting Indian refined product to the US to give you an idea of the marginal impact of Russian barrels continuing to come. Now, Russia has to go into decline, and over time that will happen. And you're you're sort of left with, okay, where does the world economy go from here if we assume that supply does have a significant limitation, which is particularly the end of growth in the US production side, which was the huge story of the last 10 years, combined with Russian declines, the potential short term for some cuts from Saudi. We have an OPEC meeting coming up in early June. Uh, and then, of course, how weak does the economy get? And that, you know, it's very interesting listening to your podcast because, of course, this is the sort of waiting for Gotto recession, right? Where you're, 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 everybody's expecting a recession that never quite comes. And in terms of the big picture of financial challenges that you talk so much about in terms of too many dollars, too much debt, the government, just as of yesterday, as you know, was talking again about no no debt ceiling crisis between Biden and and McCarthy saying, we're not going to allow it to happen, basically implies more dollars are going to be printed. So then you're in more of an inflationary environment, which is more bullish for oil you know, typically you get to a peak in Memorial Day, which is why I specifically call for 120 at Memorial Day when I was wrong. But this is about as good as it gets because through summer you typically plateau oil prices and then from Labor Day you fall. So I would say for the rest of the year, you know, it's going to be one of the lamest calls you've had on your your show. We would expect oil to average about $75, $80 a barrel for the rest of the year at best.
0: At best. Okay, so you said 40 is something of a hard floor. You know, viewers may note, the price of oil very briefly went negative, I think, in April of 2020, and remained below forty dollars for a month or two. But uh, it was not below forty dollars for long, and you know, since then it went went from forty to uh, 120 dollars uh, in, in a quite strong rally. So between forty dollars and 120 is your range. You think probably the the, the floor of more you know, uh, conservative floor will be sixty dollars. Are oil companies making money at sixty dollars?
1: They are making money, but obviously the difference between 80, 60, and, and 40 isn't that, that percentage change. It's the fact that the cost of, of producing and, and delivering a barrel of oil is about 40 or, or, or maybe even 50. I mean, most of these companies say that they can they can cover their dividend at 50. So the, 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 the $10 between 50 and 60 is essentially the difference between zero profit and $10 profit and so on. And so, yeah, I mean, they are making money, but you're talking about probably for the group, you know, a three or 4% dividend yield, which is, you know, against the treasury giving you 5%. So it's hardly exciting.
0: Paul, so it sounds like you say on the supply side, there are a lot of constraints that supply will be constrained. And, you know, I've seen folks say that your inventories are low, the supply side looks bullish. My question for you is if the supply side is so bullish, how come the price of oil has you know, glided down over the past ten months? Is that a sign that demand is actually weaker than you know, many analysts had anticipated? And how do you go about analyzing demand? You know, I think on a prior call you, you said to me that all the numbers in, in on, for oil demand are made up.
1: <laughs> well, no, what I said is the only good number in the oil market is the oil price, and the only, the only, and even worse is the demand data. And the only real way of telling what demand is doing is by looking at refining margins. So, you know, they're both market prices. Uh, We we simply don't really know where a huge amount of oil that's produced goes. You know, where is it used? Especially when we look at diesel, what we call distillate is the bigger group. Uh, You know, essentially, you have two major what we call light oil products. One is gasoline. one 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 is distillate, of which diesel is the biggest component. And whilst we have a very good idea of sort of where the oil barrels come from in terms of Saudi Arabia uh, or the US, and while we know where the refineries are because they're huge, once it comes out of the refinery, the traders really don't want you to know where it goes, right? Because they're trading. And so we don't you know, have a very good handle on whether the, the tanker is going to Africa or Brazil. And if we do, we don't then know what happens within Africa and whether it goes to industry or whatever. So there is an enormous amount of uncertainty, of which obviously the largest component is going to be China. You know, where you, you just kind of yeah, okay, fine, whatever they tell you. So that that's the problem with with the overall market. But of course, it's highly traded, so the price is is hugely indicative. I would say that yeah, demand has disappointed. I mean, I think we mentioned that uh, I was talking to you that China. A- aviation was an obvious major bull argument for this year because of the COVID lockdowns. Obviously, last year and that that's working as an argument. Uh, the specifics of China industrial recovery are, are, are weakish, um, and you know as I mentioned, China's exports in Q1 were dominated in growth terms by oil product exports. So the Chinese are importing. That's the Chinese uh, aviation data, which looks good. Uh, but on the on the service side versus industrial side of China, as you know, they've made a huge move from sort of hundred dollars of per capita income in in 1980 when Deng Xiaoping originally opened the economy to sort of let's call it eight or nine thousand dollars of per capita income, depending on how you count it. But an enormous early move was essentially industrially driven. Now the Chinese challenge is to develop the service and consumer economy, and of course that's less oil consumptive. And so the intensity, oil intensity of the Chinese economy should be reducing over time relative to GDP. And that's basically what we're seeing. And so this year, Chinese oil demand on the industrial side has been more of the sort of 1% to 1.5% type growth rate. And that's that's been probably the single biggest disappointment. US is a mixed picture. Uh, on the distillate side, it's looking weak. And there's almost a trucking crisis. If you listen to the trucking conference calls, it's um, you know, Old Dominion talked about potentially the first uh, sequentially lower Q2 to Q1 from Q1 that they, I think they've ever seen. And, and, you know, you've got very significant reductions in trade through the Port of Los Angeles and other negative indicators economically on the heavier side of the U.S. economy. But then on the same time, the single biggest component of the global oil market, which represents 10 million barrels a day out of the 100 million barrel market, is U.S. gasoline alone? It's, it's a staggering amount of the global oil market. Um, you know, especially in the context of U.S. population being 333 million people out of 8 billion, the fact that U.S. cars alone is one in 10 barrels consumed is extraordinary. And of course, is why Tesla and EVs is such a huge deal for global oil. So the gasoline side is doing well. Now, if you go back to the financial crisis, I would have said going into the financial crisis in 2008. I'm old. Uh, if you go back to then, before that, I would have said to you, U.S. gasoline is about sixty percent price and about forty percent GDP unemployment, and and diesel is is the opposite, about forty percent price and about sixty percent.
0: GDP. You mean what drives demand for gasoline okay. and diesel are, for uh, the case of gasoline, 60% price, 40% GDP? In other words, GDP is strong in terms of what the factors.
1: Exactly. And that, that was my rule of thumb going into the global financial crisis. What happened in the global financial crisis is that uh, it turned out to be ninety ten. So, in fact, gasoline demand during the global financial crisis was, was more or less flat, actually, in the U.S. because the price was so low. Uh, and diesel demand absolutely collapsed. I mean it was down sort of fifteen fifteen plus percent year over year and so what we've discovered, what we discovered by uh, by you know real time testing was that diesel is much more economically sensitive than I would have imagined and and gasoline in the u s remains you know very much price sensitive at the moment as you know you 've got low unemployment in the u s and relatively lower prices for gasoline, and gasoline 's acting very well um, on the other hand, diesel is really is really i wouldn't say it's it's a disaster but it's it's certainly quite weak a concern for refining profitability in oil is that diesel's been very strong for the past 2 years and we felt and gasoline actually quite weak so we felt that if diesel got weak it would be a very bad oil market what's propping us up a little bit here is the fact that you do still have low us unemployment people are still driving a lot And as a result, gasoline is holding up well. And that's, as I said, big enough to actually
0: hold up the entire global oil market. The U.S. gasoline market, you said, is somewhat strong. What are you seeing on the supply side factors there? I know know you've done a lot of work on the um, uh, inventories of gasoline, not just in the U.S., but uh, globally.
1: I mean, it's all quite muted, to be honest with you. I mean, everything's sort of not crazy in either direction. That's why we're struggling to trade it. You know, demand's pretty good. Inventories are somewhat tight. Inventories are tighter on the distillate side. The com- the refiners are very efficient now. Very good companies, actually, and they don't want to hold a lot of inventory at these more elevated prices. Because again, you have to remember that the current oil price is actually quite quite good by historic standards. You know, it might not be as crazy as 2022, but this price environment is actually pretty good. And and the companies, as you say, should be able to make decent money at these prices. One of the big issues that's offsetting that is productivity, and we can talk more about that. And the mega cycle, because what we're doing here is we're conflating the the, the long-term cycle that I talked about, which is the product cycle and the productivity cycle, which is a you know 10, 20 year cycle of up and down, and we're in a declining productivity cycle right now, which is bullish oil. So that's why people are bullish long term. And then you have these short-term factors, which is like, you know, how high are OECD inventories, how high is US gasoline inventories. How's the U.S. economy looking? Uh, you know, where's U.S. unemployment? All these short-term factors this sort of noise—weather's another obvious example. It's actually freezing in the Northeast at the moment, by the way. I think it's almost record cold in certain places, which is kind of weird. So, you know, all of those are the short-term factors, and of the short-term factors, they're simply not looking that bullish at the moment. Now, you know, the question is, we're teetering here a little bit into potentially getting very weak. But Jack, I'll leave it to you to tell me exactly what's going to happen to the U.S. economy next, and and then I can give you a better answer.
0: Uh, I want to pass that <laughs> potato right back right back to you, Paul. I mean, listening so,
1: to you, I know you're very clever at getting the guest on the spot and then avoiding the spot yourself. And it's, 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 it's
0: <laughs> yeah, so yeah, that's, that's my job. Play. So, so yeah, long term, you're constructive, uh, you know, a cautious way of saying bullish, and then short term, you're cautious, you know, a way of saying bearish. You you cited four factors: one, weather; two, Russia. Three, China, four, SPR. So Russia and SPR are on the supply side. Weather in China, I guess, are on the demand side. Which of those factors are the most important to you? In other words, what is motivating the, uh, your cautious outlook the most?
1: China is always the biggest thing, you know. I mean, the U.S. tends the U.S. at the margin isn't actually. I mean, it's a huge base amount of oil that's consumed, but but you know, this is very mature, obviously, and and the the long term questions become you know the extent of EV penetration and everything else, and those are looking bullish. You know, it looks like we'll be on oil for for decades to come in terms of demand. I, I, I really question the next leg of EV
0: penetration. Um, you know, and sorry, Paul. So, just for our viewers, EV is electric vehicles, yeah, which uh, does not consume oil.
1: Which more or less, is, as you know, is more or less Tesla. Um, yes. But you know, I think I think penetration of electric vehicles is um, is going to struggle. You know, and 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 as you you get to either lower income consumers. Or more urban consumers, for example, me here in Brooklyn, I can't have an EV. And when Hertz try and give me an EV, the rental company try and give me an EV, I don't want one because I can't charge it. The Hertz here in, in Brooklyn Heights, the local Hertz, doesn't have a charger themselves. To give you an example of how far behind they are, they have to take it to a mall in Queens to charge it, believe it or not. You know, so you're you're so far from getting white's huge penetration of EVs, it's quite remarkable. There's one thing that we haven't talked about in the US side, which is the IRA and the impact of particularly you know, more renewable diesel, sustainable aviation fuel, all of these things that are going to be heavily subsidized on the supply side.
0: That's an Inflation um, Reduction Act, yeah.
1: Yeah. So that, that, that's also another major complication. Of course, one of the problems with the oil cycle is that exactly at the wrong time, the government gets involved. And that hugely distorts the uh, the cycle. And it may not necessarily just be the US government getting involved with regulations and taxes and everything else that they do or subsidizing, which is the crazy thing that the Biden administration did basically over the past year and a half. Subsidy example would be releasing the strategic petroleum reserve to artificially lower prices, which is odd for an environmentally, so-called environmentally driven administration to do. You know, It's kind of venal in many ways in terms of you do need higher prices in order to get people to switch away from oil and, and they don't want those because in the short term, it doesn't suit them. So basically, the you know, governments tend to get involved at exactly the wrong moment. Another good example would be obviously Russia invading Ukraine, right? Which is that as the energy transition became heavily pursued, particularly in Germany, Russia saw its opportunity because you know, Germany had become so dependent on, Rus- on Russian natural gas. And there's no question that was a huge contributing factor to the invasion of Ukraine. So all these things distort the cycle.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying... Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code guidance10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Got another one for you, Paul. Which is you said that you typically do not want to own oil stocks going into a recession, and you know the analysts are all saying oil stocks are so cheap. I think you know the median PE aggregate P- price to earnings ratio, is something around eight or nine. But Paul, as you all too well know, that is incredibly dependent upon the price of oil. Like when some, the price of oil is at one hundred and twenty dollars, people are saying, "Oh my god, this company is trading at a half a half free cash flow yield." It's like, yeah. yeah. At one hundred and twenty dollars what's what is it doing at sixty dollars it's probably not so cheap anymore so what do you think about the oil sector uh in, in terms of stocks as an investor you know your your work at Sankey research you're not just uh uh, and analysts focusing on the oil market, not just a barrel counter, but you specifically analyze specific companies as well, which which I like and I, I think it's it's very important to understand the oil market. So there's you know the uh, mid cap uh, exploration and production companies, there are the mega caps, the, the Exxon Mobiles, there are the refiners, all sorts of different companies. What is your general outlook, and then and then get into the sort of specifics?
1: What I would just add, and in, in, in terms of everything that we sort of zoomed around looking at what we what we saw over the past 2 years was that high oil prices extremely high natural gas prices are fundamentally unsustainable right so we, we showed that however dramatically cataclysmic the environment is and if you think about again keeping in mind that russia is not only the largest oil exporter but also natural gas exporter in the world it's staggering how fast the market reacted you know whether it was through lower consumption it's very damaging for the european economy everything else but what it showed you is that anyone who ever says to you hey oil is going to sustain 200 because we run out of supply in the future is talking nonsense you know we just proved that you won't effectively and it's it's just you know take that as a given and then as we also referenced previously in the conversation you know the difference between a hundred dollar oil and fifty dollar oil is not is not a fifty percent change for an oil company it's the difference between fifty dollars profit per barrel which you know for, for an Exxon would be, you know, sort of 2 million barrels a day of oil and 4 million barrels a day of production. It's an enormous amount of money that effectively goes to zero. <laughs> and that's why the multiples will obviously tend to very much discount high price environments. And, and anybody who says they're cheap may not be thinking straight. Additionally, what we saw at very high prices, I mentioned governments getting involved at the wrong point of the cycle. They came in and added, for example, in Europe, major windfall taxes. I mean, windfall taxes mm-hmm. affected. ExxonMobil by hundreds of millions of dollars, not to mention Shell and BP and more extreme examples of the North Sea names and, and some a million. Of, of a million would be another very good example where you, know, you could have said, buy that thing, it's on two times eb to EBITDA and it turned out to be on 10. So that, that's, that's a real challenge and what we've encouraged the companies, in fact, we've, we've really challenged the companies, uh, starting actually with refining. Because years ago in 2010, I was so frustrated by the performance of the refining sector that we said, look, all you've got to do is stop spending capex, focus on your operations, stop hedging. They were awful at hedging. And just focus on spending as little money as you can while operating safely, because the first principle of refining is run the refinery. And the market, you know, if you hedge, the market wants the leverage and risk of refining. But if you hedge and margins, for whatever reason, go crazy, You give that away and you make your stock very unattractive, make the business model able to withstand the volatility of the commodity cycle. Fast forward to 2017, I was looking at a relatively what I thought was at the time okay oil price, which was actually $50 a barrel in 2017, with $50 flat on the strip. Um, You had the Permian opportunity, which was the biggest and best uh, industrial opportunity that you'd seen for the US oil companies almost in their history you know the basically the biggest oil field in the world in texas which obviously is a huge advantage not least because it's next to all the major refineries and you couldn't give away an oil stock and so the question was you know what is the problem with oil stocks when actually this is a kind of an okay if not very good environment and the answer was your strategy sucks and the strategy was to grow as fast as possible Really, the rule of thumb was that for every dollar these companies got, they spent dollar twenty, And that's why you saw the oil service companies trade at a premium because the assumption was high oil prices. The drunken sailor EMPs would just go out and spend the money to grow as fast as they
0: can. And they went bankrupt.
1: Pretty much. The, um, the, the history was that because it was such a struggle to grow in US EMP, any growth equaled returns. And so actually the managements were incentivized to grow and literally they made more money pay if they grew better. And so all the pay metrics of the companies were distorted. So in the 2017 though, what we said is look, you just stop, 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 you've got to stop spending. We called it the renaissance of USEMP and we laid out a very simple uh, roadmap that, that had demonstrably worked for the refiners, which was if you all stop spending too much money. You'll tighten the market, margins will be better and you'll make excess profits and you'll become more attractive. I promise you, there's been times when, you know, I remember Valero at 15 bucks a share. I think it hit 150, you know, where these companies just transform themselves in what is ostensibly a deteriorating market. Because obviously you're looking at a mature oil market that everybody is working to try and become even smaller. So if the companies embrace that, what they should do is spend as little money as possible while maintaining production and generate free cash flow and pay that back. And what we've been looking for and the companies have succeeded in doing is to bring their break-evens, which is the oil price they need to cover their dividend and their capex down below 50 and therefore be long-term investable. And that's essentially what we've seen the companies do over the past couple of years They didn't really listen to me in 2017, quite frankly, but with COVID, they they got it. You know what I mean? I I had the idea and they got the same idea by a different route, which was what happens if oil goes to minus 37, which is what we did. And they had to basically embrace the idea of capital discipline. And then, okay, then- so
0: it's a narrative of capital discipline. Instead of drilling new wells, we're going to be spending money on saving money, putting it in our treasury, buying back shares. And if, to, if production even declines, you know we're gonna we're not going to be plowing money back into the ground. How much of that narrative played out? All oh, when the price of oil was at one hundred and twenty dollars, though.
1: No, they were disciplined. They did a really good job. Yeah, they just sat right there and they said, "Okay, look." I mean, you got to remember that these companies were. were even relatively large companies were saying, like a pioneer, a major e was, were talking about double-digit growth and going to a million barrels a day of production as a kind of, you know, round number target, just in terms of volumes. So they were they were growing, to, you know. And as you know, if you compound double-digit growth, <laughs> it's it's insane in a market where a big demand growth year for oil is one percent growth, right? You know, if global oil demand grows two percent, it's it's a huge number. So why are you trying to take market share from who? The Saudis? I mean, you're insane. you're not the unit. you're going you're gonna to die on that hill. What you should do is maximize your efficiency, pay your management for return on capital employed. And also my, my, my argument was that you should if, embrace the end of the oil age and liquidate in an orderly manner. So essentially people say, "Oh, there's no terminal values and value in these companies. That's, that says maybe. But if, let's say, for example, you pay a cash return of 10% a year, you don't grow at 10% a year, you return 10% cash to shareholders a year or in excess of that, within eight years, uh, by math, uh, a shareholder gets their capital fully returned to them. At that point, in eight years' time, you own an option on the oil age lasting a lot longer than the eight years during which time you've been paid out. Now, these are not, you know, short-term, long-short hedge fund arguments. These are fundamental investment, uh, you know, value Warren Buffett, you know, uh, Benjamin Graham style arguments for valuation. But what else have you got? Right. You can't argue that the oil market's going to triple or that we've got the new AI. We haven't, if anything, AI is going to be a major threat to the, to the, to the, uh, to the oil price because of presumed uh, efficiency gains. Mm. So, you know, ultimately what they have to do is pay you to own the stock. And the refiners did that. So the refiners essentially were not ostensibly in any way attractive. They're not environmentally attractive, et cetera, et cetera. But I tell you what, if you pay someone a 12% yield every year, it's almost irresistible for a quality investor to to own
0: that. A 12% Um, dividend?
1: Yeah, cash return. I mean, it could be buyback. We'll give them credit for buyback. So if you you reduce your share count by 5% and pay a 4% yield, uh, you know, with a 2% special, bingo. And that's, by the way, they're paying out way more than that over the past year. The way that you manifest all that is to tend to look at free cash flow yield and then, and then you know, think about how much these guys can pay out. And to get to the 10%, you probably need an excess of 60, more like an excess of 70. In fact, they're struggling, to be honest, to make a 10% built-up return this year if you X out the, the, the trailing excess profit they've got to hand back to you. But you can still basically get there in a $70 to $80 environment. The other important thing is, is to keep in mind that the marginal growth in oil supply essentially all comes from the US. So if the US stops drilling and, and stops generating excess supply, you're going to reprice oil higher with the cycles of the demand side. But with 8 billion people in the world, you know, many of them not using any kind of commercial energy, uh, you're you're you've almost got a guaranteed floor of of you know hundreds of, of let's say a hundred million barrels a day of oil demand, which is actually very hard to supply. So my anticipation is we have weakness here, as I said, and not nothing much exciting in the oil price this year. But that as we go forward, oil is going to become harder and harder to supply because you simply isn't that easy to find more oil, and where the oil remains and is in many cases very difficult places like Iraq you're going to push the oil price higher naturally over time just by weight of global population and ultimately have to force efficiency at some sort of price break point very high. So let's say we've, we've agreed it's probably $120 or $130 oil is where you have to go to to force people to use less oil. Now, you've got to keep in mind things like people you know, drive enormous. Pick The, the, the most popular vehicle in the US is, is the Ford 150, which is kind of insane. It's like, how come you know, I used to count with my kids on the highway how many people that were driving a pickup have something in the back. You know, there's no reason for all these enormous vehicles. If you look at the average vehicles, the most popular vehicle in the you, Europe is the Peugeot 206, which you can pretty much fit in the back of an F-150. So that's why I think the Biden administration was, you know, so intellectually, you know, out of whack by trying to force oil prices lower. When what they should have been doing is saying, look, you're going to have to live with this if you want to be more efficient, which is efficiency being environmental friendliness. But, you know,
0: that's... I think it was, they were doing what almost any politician would do, which is high oil prices hurt them. So they were you know, acting in their... self.
1: There's a fundamental problem, which is the political cycle is shorter than the energy cycle by a very long way, yeah. right? So they're always yeah. going to go for low gasoline prices to win the next election. They're always going to make a load of green promises because they know it polls so well, particularly with young people. And then they're basically always not going to deliver it. And in the meantime, they're going to screw up with a whole lot of nonsensical. I mean, half, you know, there's just a I'll I'll tell you a longer story basically. It won't take long, but it's a longer idea, which is that years ago I read this book by a lady called Lisa Marginelli called Oil on the Brain. And she she was in California and she knew nothing about oil. She's a journalist. And she decided to go and just find what the story was. And so she went to a local gas station and she interviewed the guy and he told her to go and look at a refinery. So she went to a refinery and she kept going and she ended up in the Nigerian Delta. That's cool. <laughs> it's super cool. And at the end of it, you know, this is approximate. I haven't read the book for 15 years, but I've talked about it for 15 years Um <laughs> I can relate. (laughs) At the end of it, she said, you know, people think there's a conspiracy in oil, which is something to do with, you know, the CEO of Exxon, Vladimir Putin, uh, you know, the Venezuelan mafia and, um, you know, whoever that, that, uh, you know, you see it constantly. The politicians saying that they're gouging prices and it's just idiotically misinformed, ill-informed, you know, the real conspiracy of oil is the conspiracy of ignorance on the part of the consumer. And and people just don't understand how much energy density there is in oil and how much they're using. The average American um, uses 20 barrels of oil per head per year.
0: I really do agree with you on about um, uh, the price gouging point is that if you have a specialty product that it's not a commodity, only you produce it. It's a special uh, uh, joint that goes in a Boeing point and you you sell it for $10,000 because no one else can make it. That's price gouging or you have some type of special yoga pant, that's price gouging. But it's very hard to price gouge a commodity.
1: I'll tell you what's price gouging is I just, my wife just made me clear out all my charges, and I was looking at all the Apple charges, you know?
0: That's price gouging.
1: (laughs) You know, and and imagine if oils had, you know, the market share of iPhone, the market share of Google, the market market share of Windows, you know, people would be losing their mind. And then they're totally idiotic because they forget that, in a gas station, and you could do what my Lisa Marcinelli does, go and go and ask the guy in the gas station. For a start, it says Shell, and it's nothing more or less nothing to do with Shell, it's just a legacy branding. Yep. Uh, they don't run the thing. Secondly, if oil prices are going up rapidly, guess who loses money first? The gas station, right? So I mean the idea that they're gouging is absolute nonsense. Thirdly, there's been enormous number of studies done to show that you can't gouge in the free market. And it's been illegal since basically 1908, <laughs> you know. So the idea that Exxon's gouging is just flat idiotic, and it drives me nuts that they keep blaming it because, it, you know, it's one of those lines I have, which is if you blame price gouging for gasoline prices, you're just telling me you're ignorant about oil. That's all you. That's all you know. That's 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 it. You know, Senator Warren. So. Um, you know another very good example of ignorance was last year we, we the the energy secretary Granholm announced um, you know an SPR release and some bright journalist said by the way how much is U S daily oil demand you know she announced I think it was a sixty million barrel release and some of the, the journalist said you know how, just remind me how much daily oil demand in the U S is and there was just this moment <laughs> where it's like she doesn't know the answer is twenty million barrels a day by the way.
0: Sticking on the stock points, it sounds like you're long-term, middle-term, constructive on oil stocks for reasons you mentioned. But in the shorter term, six months, 12 months, I mean, you said that not time to buy oil stocks headed into a recession. I mean, do you think we are going into a recession? And if the price of oil goes to $60, it's hard for a lot of these stocks, particularly the uh, middle-cap, small-cap ones, which are more junky, uh, have higher break-evens, they could even start losing money. And I, I can't imagine they're stock prices would do that well, right? I
1: was in Washington talking to a lobbyist, who, by the way, was a big Democratic lobbyist, who was a- admitting that, that pursuing low gasoline prices in the context of trying to undertake an energy transition was nonsensical, but it's just political reality. So we've covered that. In terms of the recession, what she was saying is, is where is this recession? You know, it's been, it's, it's been so difficult. And then if you think about it, okay, look, I can't call the short term, I'll try the mega theme. You look at Japan, and it makes sort of no sense that you could have the dem- demographic dynamics of Japan. I worked for a Japanese bank, not least because of the demographic dynamics of Japan. They were trying to grow in the US. And Japanese population shrinks a million a year. And they have 0.8 children per woman. You need 2.2 just to stay flat. You know, they are so far off anything other than a, a mathematically defined decline now. In terms of population, that you then consider whatever it is, 130 percent debt to GDP, which they've been at for a long time with the same population dynamics, and you saw it by the way last year, as you know, the yen absolutely fall out of bed, and I thought, well, finally the moment's come. This is where logically we should be going, right? And it's rallied right back, right? And it's like Japanese well,
0: rates, although it's given a little bit back because Japanese rates stayed essentially at zero while the Fed ECB hiked so much.
1: But you would think the big picture would be, and this is—if you remember, this was one of the origins of people getting excited about crypto or whatever. Was you know this shouldn't kind of be rolling on in the way that it is, and you know you've all always got in the back of your mind, great long-term investors who know naturally you should always be optimistic, you know, and you should sort of stay long. So it's it's just extremely tough, and I, I think about it a lot. I just wish I had a really good answer. I think that. Um, the U- US economy, the two things I say is the US economy is so enormous and we're on such a high base that it's going to be, it, it's a beast to slow this thing down. You know what I mean? It, it really is. And, and kind of trying to corral it once it's rolling and the way it's rolling is very, very difficult. I think the other thing that's extremely tough is that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And, you know, in terms of the stock market, essentially the, the 1% own 50% of the market. And, you know, black people own own almost no stock. So it's very difficult to know, you know, the extent to which um, essentially this will be stock, you know, will the stock market just sort of keep on going regardless as wealth concentration continues? And then, of course, as you know, you have. And it's
0: not good for the economy because people who have the higher marginal propensity to consume, they're not the ones with the money. And so, you know, Bill Gates can get another billion dollars every day, but he's not going to be spending that much of it, you know.
1: That's true. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that stuff has all got to be factored in. So, you, I guess what, what I constantly wonder is how the US economy keeps going as well as it does. Seemingly, we have these these data points, which are, are, are very important leading indicators, as we said, things like the trucking market. But at the same time, you go to an airport, or last night I was in an expensive midtown restaurant. They're jammed, they're rammed. I mean, we had to sit at the bar. You know what I mean? They don't have a table. And so, yeah, there's your trucking data there and you can see it's sort of flatlining along the bottom. So it's it's a real tough one. And I, I guess you th- you think it has to be inevitable. And the, and the manifestation of that, as you know, is that everybody's bearish the market, more or less, right? But now people have woken up to the fact that we're in a pain trade and we probably go higher. And the other thing, as you know, is that the concentration of the market is so brutal in terms of, you know, Apple just goes up and up, even though its earnings are actually declining. All these things are imponderables. One thing that people don't do a good job of of thinking about, which has been so huge for the market over the last three years, is cost of capital. And so the problem for the oils is that the market assigns them a high cost of capital. And this is why a strategy such as BPs, where they said, "Okay, we're going to become an energy transition company, was just a crashing error. Because they blatantly told you, and by the way, the, the, the report was more, the, the strategy is more or less designed by McKinsey, which is kind of a schoolboy era, was they they didn't realize anything about the cost of capital that BP is assigned by the market, especially in the context of its history of things but like- But
0: wouldn't co- the cost of capital go down if it branded itself as a clean energy company?
1: No, it's what I'm saying is it's existing cost of capital- is too high for it to make any money as a renewable company so it's just going to be a value destruction machine right so right. Basically, any be, the lack of trust in BP means that you need 25 percent return for them to invest a dollar. you know what I mean they literally need a project that's a 25 percent return investment for the market to approve it if you look at right, the- but,
0: so sorry Paul, just just to uh, make the argument that I think it's if if they were to issue a bond to drill a new well, the a lot of folks with esg ESG mandates would not buy those bonds but if they issued a bond to build a windmill project people would buy those bonds so the cost of capital for being a green energy company whether it's legit or not would be lower right i'm not saying i agree with that but isn't that the argument uh
1: it's not (laughs) no because if the, the the bond would go to part of that debt and they would have rising debt and the stock would go down Mm. Right, so you can't the the bond isn't the the BP bond to to build a renewable within BP is just considered part of BP. Now, if if PB, a different company comes along and says I'm going to raise a I'm going to raise a bond to build a wind wind power, then they have a clean then they have a clean sheet. Yeah, so they have a very low cost of capital. That's why, you know, you'll give First Solar or some good solar company an extremely low cost of capital because it's got a clean track record and it's pure solar. That's my point. You can't mix the two businesses in terms of cost of capital. You only get one cost of capital, effectively. And it's a constant mistake that you see amongst, for example, conglomerates or in the case of mixed business oil companies. It would be I make a ton of money in the upstream a good return in, in the refining with volatility and a very steady return in midstream, I'm going to take the weighted average of those three costs of capital, uh-uh. you get the most risky cost of capital, right? So basically, you know, you have a single cost of capital that's reflective of, for example, high refining volatility. Now, that to an extent, some of it can work through. You have, for example, Valero doing a great job in, in getting into renewable diesel partnered with Darling and what you'll see is the stock goes up a lot. Because of that, effectively, the market's lowering its cost of capital, even though ostensibly as a refiner, it should get a brutal cost of capital. So in that case, it's a legit business for them to pursue. But there are other guys like, for example, Dyna, formerly Holly Frontier, where they're not doing a great job of of pursuing renewables and the stock's going down. And you can see the market's now beginning to punish them for struggling with renewable diesel project delivery. So you know, it gets it gets a little bit involved for your for your listeners, uh Jack, especially in the amount of time that we have.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of forward guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some forward guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com/slash-sign-up. You can also get ten percent off using the discount code Guidance Ten. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. Paul, earlier you referenced Warren Buffett. He has been an investor in Occidental Petroleum, ticker OXY, and you note that he likes to buy it below sixty dollars. I think the correct me if I'm wrong. The points on the green, uh, the dots in green, are where he. He bought that below sixty dollars, so uh, it is below sixty dollars now. What what can we? What does that mean for us, for investors?
1: Well, you lowered the cost of capital, Jack. <laughs> uh, you know, to continue to continue on that theme. Uh, yeah, obviously, if you you know originally. Obviously, made an enormously misguided and mistimed uh, play for Anadarko, and that crushed the stock and massively raised their debt. The debt that they raised was a wall of debt, which was another mistake. So they, and, and then of course they hit COVID. So it was a, it was a real monster mess, and in that process. Uh, in order to get the deal done, the determination of the CEO Vicky Hollop to get the deal for Anadarko done involved uh, a significant loan, a ten billion dollar loan from um, from Warren Buffett cash, which, you
0: pre- which preferred security. Exactly, security. So it was
1: a preferred. It was a preferred deal that that was in order to get over the line and avoid a vote, a shareholder vote for the Anadarko uh, takeover. And obviously, you know, cometh COVID, the whole thing was was. Teetering right on the brink, um, but in that process, obviously, Vicky got to know got to know Warren, and you know clearly uh, he's decided at a given point that he wants to own more Oxy, probably because he's already long, and and probably because he sees the threat of of high oil prices as a you know a potential uh, something that he should be long. His track record is you know being quite mixed in oil. I, th- I remember when I covered ConocoPhillips, as was. Uh, prior to ConocoPhillips split with Phillips 66 that Buffett had described his position as the biggest shareholder in ConocoPhillips straight into the global financial crisis as the worst investment of his career and involved, by the way, the company in a $36 billion right now. He then actually sold out at the bottom of ConocoPhillips. So he's had a mixed track record in this area, but I think in the case of Oxy, it's it's vast in the Permian, which is a great place to be. You know, it's it's a huge Texas oil field. What's wrong with owning that? At the latest AGM, um, he mentioned that Charlie had had spent a thousand dollars in the '50s on a on a, an oil royalty that still pays him. I think he said seventy thousand dollars a yep. year now. And so you know, I think they can see the long term significance of oil. He's he's more guarded. I don't follow everything he says, but I haven't heard him say pine a huge amount on the environment. But what we do know is that he's cash flow oriented. And we know that he'll probably keep oxy capex very low in the way that I've described, I believe oil companies should so they should be very, very tight with how much capital they deploy and return as much as they possibly can. And to that extent, uh, obviously, Uncle Warren can handle the volatility. And so it becomes quite a logical investment. And then you can see that he's clearly got Uh, a policy of buying the stock. And by the way, the other thing that we've highlighted, Jack, is he doesn't care how much of the daily volume he represents. So he can blow out the volume when it goes below 60. And that makes Oxy probably, you know, I'm not qualified to to give individuals investment advice, but probably selling puts below 55 might be one that you could think about here. Or, you know, below 58, if you really believe the charts that we've laid out. And those charts, of course, are simply uh, quantitative, right? I mean, that's just, you know... uh, uh, Berkshire filings of when they've changed position and how much they've bought in Oxy. And so it's incontrovertible what's going on, right? It's not, it's not my opinion. It's a quantitative assessment of of Buffett buying Oxy. He went, uh, you know, we, there'd been debate whether he would go the whole way. I don't think either Oxy or he wants to own the whole of Oxy. Yeah. You want to maintain the brand. You want to remain maintain the corporate. It's a mag- magnificent history. It's, it's mixed history. It, it had an initial Amazing story, actually. I'll, I'll sidetrack into a little oil story for you, which is that Exxon had been drilling in Libya. No, excuse me, I'll take it back. Mobile had been dr- drilling in Libya and couldn't find any oil in the desert. And they gave up and uh, and relinquished the acreage. And Oxy, which was a tiny uh, Californian EMP that had been bought by Arm and Hammer, Oxy drilled a, a well in the middle of the Mobile base camp where it had been located. <laughs> And found, I think, 6 billion barrels of light oil right next to Europe. And, you know, the rest is history. Um, so, you know, one of those kind of classic oil stories. It's a similar one, modern one, is Hess, um, I think, bought the Guyana acreage from Shell for $8 million, approximately. Yeah. Very low number, let's say. And that's probably worth $8 billion now to Hess. So... Um, yeah, these things happen in oil. That's that's why, as they say, you know, Jack, the secret to getting rich, John Paul Getty, is you just get up early, work hard, and discover oil.
0: I just want to say on Occidental, you said, you know, p- potential of selling puts, selling put spreads. Yeah, if Berkshire continues to be an aggressive buyer at $58, $59, below $60, that sh- sh- uh, strategy might have some promise, but there's no guarantee that it, it would. And I think at the uh, AGM annual uh, general meeting or shareholders meeting, that happened two weeks ago, I think Buffett indicated he did not want to buy a lot more of shares. I forget the exact quote.
1: I thought Um, he said he wasn't gonna buy all of it. There was a previous filing um, whereby they they had said they won't go over 50%, right? It's part of the filing. So we already know essentially, uh, you know what, you've got me on the spot here because it's a while back since that filing came out. But in my head, there's something to do with a a 50% cap anyway. Yeah. And you know the steady buying, I think, can keep going on. Essentially, just because what he's got there is is something of a free cash flow machine. You know, a major position in the Permian, which is strategically hugely important.
0: And the, uh, they're I mean, selling. Goes, uh, they're uh, uh, Oxy is buying back the preferred sh- stock, so right. their ownership is is going to go down. Um. Yeah, I I didn't mean to put you on spot. And also, I don't know if I'm right. I, I I think yeah, he didn't. He said he didn't want to own all of it, but. He did not say that he would not buy buy more shares by any means. Uh, Paul, you've got a a great chart from Sankey Research uh, showing a a very uh, you know mathematical correlation between the bank stocks and oil stocks, showing that they are falling together. Uh, We can put that on screen later, but I just put a more uh, you know less institutional, more uh, friendly uh, chart of just the uh, uh, U.S. uh, United States oil uh, ETF, which owns uh, futures on. Um, WTI, uh, the financial uh, sector ETF XLF, and then XLE, uh, which is the energy sector ETF, and I intentionally did not label them just to show the fact that you can't really tell which one is which. So the the general point is, oil stocks have been trading alongside financial stocks, and the general theme I would say would be down over the past uh, six six months. What do you make of that correlation, that positive correlation between? Oil stocks and uh, energy uh, uh, um, financial stocks, and that uh, financial stocks are kind of leading the way down for oil stocks.
1: Well, as I mentioned, I mean the original quant players were loved trading oil, right? Because it's a highly traded; you could trade it electronically, and so it's risk on, risk off, right? I mean, it's simply just the market trading, and we know that the market's trading highly, uh, you know, highly electronically. I don't know quite how to put it, but essentially machines trade a lot of the market, and so the same the same risks that you know, are visible in the banking sector, and the implications of the banking sector problems are effectively the same risks that you see in oil, and you end up with this oddly close. Cons- you know, but on the other hand, it doesn't it entirely make sense that bank stocks would trade as closely. It also tells you the government's just gone way too far in terms of how much they've printed and, and how much how tangled up they are in driving all these markets, and they're in a they're in a jam, and the Fed's in a jam, and they're going to have to work out how to get out of it. A lot of the guys I know who are very good at this stuff on Wall Street are very, very concerned that this is all going to end horribly, which is why everyone's so bearish. But of course, as soon as everyone's bearish, the market just goes higher and higher. But this latest thing, you know, this latest debt ceiling negotiation is is a good example. You know, yesterday the DOE, the weekly DOE data came out, which is the best leading indicator, best uh, high frequency data covering the global oil market is the best we have by far is the weekly EIA d- data that comes out and says what happened last week in US oil. Data was pretty bearish. You get the announcement about the debt ceiling and oil rips. You know, So that's just a fact of life. And it, and I say it just makes life complicated over this period where essentially the government's just printing more and more dollars and driving the market higher and higher, which is obviously for any financial Person, anyone who knows anything about finance is, is kind of scary, and you know, you, I think that's why your podcast is so popular, right? Everyone's fretting oh. desperately about this stuff.
0: Well, Paul, I, I liked you already, but now that you said that, my podcast, you're you know my favorite <laughs> guest. <laughs> um, thank you. Than what they
1: want to hear, mate.
0: Paul, before I ask my final question, you just sum up your views. Tell us about Sankey Research. Where can people uh, go to find out more? And what do people get with your research? It's pr- primarily for institutions, right? Not uh, not retail.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's independent research, right? So essentially, anyone's welcome. It's just that, you know, it, it's priced. It depends. If, if you're demonstrably an individual, we will price it differently for you. You know what I mean? If you're retired or disabled or a student, you know, I might give it to you for free. Uh, it's all up to me. It's there's no the, there's no specific price, um, but generally speaking, yes. What we're trying to do is we we're not trying to. It's not a mass product, you know. We're, we're selling it to very sophisticated investors. It might not be the most sophisticated product, but I can tell you, my my investors that we aim for are the most sophisticated in the world, and um, yeah. So essentially, what they sign up for is. You get uh every Sunday I write a Sunday Sankey, which you've showed some charts from
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and and you know funny enough, what people want is is uh maybe we should do more podcasts, but basically what people want is the email you know that's how people still consume typically Sankey research it's a written product, so I don't do a huge amount of outgoing calls or yada 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 uh, I do try and manage. Uh, for everyone that's involved in this game. So whether it's long only, long short hedge funds, you know, et cetera, et cetera, debt. It's also quite widely read and, and subscribed to by corporates. So you, what you read, I can tell you, there's a lot of oil CEOs reading it too. And then, you know, depending on what kind of mood I'm I'm in, um, last night I was watching the soccer drinking, zero alcohol Heineken. So I was up at five this morning. Uh, we'll put out notes, um, which is called the morning Sankey. And that's just whatever we think is happening that's interesting to us. You know, Wall Street Research has got a problem because it's very siloed. You know, so if I worked at a big bank, I'd have to just write about EMP. and you know, I can't say, oh, my God, I think, you know, Tesla's the best thing in the world or the worst thing in the world because there's a Tesla analyst. Whereas being literally Sankey Research, it is me <laughs> and my partner, Greg Bordelon. We can uh, we can cover any subject that we think is interesting or relevant. And of course, it's very important that I had to leave a big bank in order to do that because we're in an energy transition. You know, it's not called an energy transition for nothing. Uh, we're changing the world, and so we can suddenly start talking about peabody coal because it became so relevant all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. You can't do that at a Wall Street Bank, it blows up the system. But so there's a
0: materials analyst who said that's right, what exactly, or, yeah, or it's yeah.
1: not covered or whatever. I and mean, then they want you to initiate and write a huge piece about coal and cover six coal stocks. It's like, we're not going to do that. We've written about copper, you know, we've written about life cycle, battery recycling. We had a disastrous call in an autonomous truck company. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not which, all- which one? Embark. Uh, I, oh, I suspect, yeah. you know, you, the CFO stopped returning my calls. It was as bad as that. But um, essentially, I think they were part of the Silicon Valley Bank problem. Um, and and you know it was obviously it was an autonomous truck company, so it was a, it was a pre-revenue software as a service. And, and notwithstanding anyone I buried, and I apologize to anyone I buried in Embark. The, the learning as an analyst how to cover and an actually covering a software as a service company based in in San Francisco was the kind of experience I wasn't going to get. Just you know grinding away writing earnings previews and reviews for a for right. a big Wall Street bank. And then, of course, we can be rude about the Chinese Communist Party. You know, look at what Jamie Diamond said about the Chinese Communist Party and immediately had to sort of spend the next two days. Uh, what did he say I didn't that? Uh, he just made some comment about, you know, I think it was weird. It was like J.P. Morgan's going to be here longer than the Chinese Communist Party. I think literally that's what he said.
0: Ooh, that's, a, that's a pretty aggressive.
1: So anyway, look, you get that. And then once a week we do a similar podcasty kind of thing on a Thursday night, uh, often a good example is last week we actually had the head of upstream of hess and uh the irfs j wilson and greg hill i got that the wrong way around the head of upstream is greg hill who's fascinating mm-hmm. by the way greg hill um was a former top class rodeo rider uh educated in wyoming and, and actually got kicked in the face by a horse uh and and gave up the rodeo but i think is i think he said he's now chairman of the rodeo riders association or something like that but anyway that's his background but Brilliant man, clearly, because he then went on to become the head of Hess, the uh, head of Upstream at Hess, which is, you know, really, uh, really the the most uh, fantastic long term story that you see today in oil. Thematically, I didn't say this, but basically, we think you're short U.S. energy infrastructure, so we generally like uh, U.S. pipelines, like MLPs. We generally like U.S. refining because we believe that stuff is going to be difficult to build, and is much needed, so that the demand side of the equation is going to last longer than people think. And and addressing that is harder than people think. And what do you think
0: about the small cap, mid cap, maybe the Canadian E&P companies, the producers?
1: Uh, Canada's interesting because there's this extraordinarily expensive pipeline being built uh, from Calgary, uh, essentially from Alberta, I should say, uh, to the West Coast, which is now owned by the Canadian government, Kinder. Uh, realized it was all going horribly wrong, basically, and and were going to abandon it, but managed to sell it to the Canadian government. That's a $30 billion pipeline, which is an extraordinary number. It's the most expensive pipeline in history. And if they can get that built, that will then greatly change global oil flows, actually, and allow Canada to start growth again. The smaller they are, the hairier they are. One of the problems with the individual oil stocks is they've all delevered. So where you used to have some extreme examples of leverage, I'm talking financial leverage, obviously, Mm -hmm. And, and and you know, across the board there was a range of financial leverages depending on how much risk you wanted to take. Actually, all the oils have paid down debt. So they're much safer investments than they used to be, but there's also less juice across the board. Mm-hmm. Operational risk is is complicated because a lot of these companies are, are gas companies in disguise. So if you take yeah. a company, just an example that we use, and I really think Devon Management, Devon DVN is excellent. But the reality of their asset base is they're about 50% non-oil. Um, what you've obviously seen, and we do, haven't talked about, we need another hour, is natural gas and how much pressure there has been on natural gas prices, which is partly associated with drilling, literally associated with drilling heavily for oil and getting free natural gas. Mm-hmm. Um, that means that natural gas and the and the interim product which comes out of the, the ground, which is NGLs, natural gas liquids, those mm-hmm. prices have been under tremendous pressure.
0: And but, are you are you bearish natural gas?
1: The mega theme is super bullish. You know, I think it is the transition fuel. I think that we've come through the Russia situation with people realizing that energy security is is crucial. You can't make idiotic mistakes like shutting down uh, German nuclear. You have to keep the lights on, and in order to to have a tremendous amount of solar and wind, it doesn't obviously the sun doesn't always shine. And typically, what people miss is that geographically, wind tends to either be windy. Or not windy. I know it sounds idiotic, but it's not like you have one part of the US which is a lot less. Well, the US is a bad example, but in Europe, it tends to be very windy across Europe or not. And then that tends to run for several days. So mm-hmm. basically, you could get a wind, windless cloudy, cloud, cloudiness for like five or six days, at which point you have a major problem with using wind and solar for electricity. <laughs> You either do nuclear or you do natural gas. You know, it's as
0: simple as that. Or you store it. You you have technology where you can store it for a really long time, which is uh, in the process of, of being developed. Um, yeah, but- well, that, would, that
1: would be the battery, and and they've been developing that one for about 120 years. So, yeah, there, there is no base. Basically, the, the big issue: the battery is the holy grail, actually. It's mm-hmm. totally the holy grail, but the problem mm-hmm. is you haven't got close, even remotely close to a baseload battery that would be, for example, the equivalent of a nuclear power plant. I mean, you're absolutely nowhere near that.
0: Yep. Anyway, yeah,
1: thank you, Research. research.com. You're welcome to have a look. You sign up for free, actually, and then if you read it a lot, we come and talk about money.
0: There, there we go. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you, you know a lot. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at Blockworks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.